You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC, and now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors, everyone. Uh, Rochelle Vanderzanden here with Corey Janoff, as always. Hello, hi, everyone. There we go. Uh, today, we're going to talk about an exciting investment topic, which is called tax loss harvesting. So I don't know if any of you have heard of that before. I think in our episodes a couple of times, we may have said, Google that. But instead of having you Google it today, we're actually going to talk about it and explain a little bit about it today. Basically, the idea is that when there is market volatility, sometimes that can provide advantages in your taxable investment accounts. And by market volatility, we're kind of using that as a code word for pullbacks in the market where you lose some money. But that can be advantageous in some situations. And we're going to talk a little bit about how you can um, basically trigger some losses in your accounts to offset gains. Um, It can be pretty, like, we don't want to, encourage people to do this without care. Like obviously it's very important that we're approaching this carefully. And it's also like, this is not particular advice for your situation. This is not tax advice. If you're going to do something like this, definitely like talk to your CPA, talk to an advisor or someone like that to actually implement it. But we did want to give you guys an overview. We also have someone with us today, Zach Kill, who works for our firm. He is a CFA, and Corey is going to introduce him and talk about him a little bit for you. Yes. Thank you for joining us, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me. First and foremost. And yeah, CFA um, stands for Chartered Financial Analysts, uh, or I like to prefer it as Certified Freaking Awesome. And uh, basically, it means Zach knows way more about investments than you or I ever will. Now, you may be wondering, why I would not know much about investments. Well, uh, I want to say not know much. I know a decent amount, but, um, you know, think of me as like a general surgeon. Um, you know, I'm not also going to give you anesthesia. You know, let's bring an anesthesiologist in for that component of it. So we're fortunate here at Finity to have multiple CFAs on staff to help us with our investment management and make sure we're doing the best job for our clients. But Zach, why don't you uh, give us a little humble brag here and tell us the steps involved to passing the CFA exams and, and obtaining that certification? Yeah, so it's a three-step process. Um, there, so there are three tests. Level one is focused more on broad investment topics, just kind of uh, going through, just do you know what these things are? Level two is a lot more math oriented, a lot of formulas, it's a lot of discounted cash flow, um, just different valuation methods for both bonds, equities, everything like that. I think there are around 260 formulas memorized on level two. Um, Level three is more broad financial planning focused, um, so that talks about suitability and how to put together portfolios for clients. Awesome. And it takes a a minimum of three years, right? They only offer that each level once per year, correct? Yeah, so they offer level two in June and December, and they will offer level three, or two and three, uh, just in June. So if you fail it, you have to wait a year in between to do it. And I think the pass rate for... I think pass rate for level one is about 42% of people take it pass. For level two is about 46. And I think for level three, it's 52. Do you know the odds for, like, if you pass the first one, what the odds of you getting the next ones? Yeah, so I know that only 10% of people pass all three tests. 
in the first shot. Okay. Um, wow. So yeah, that's a tough one. I think the, the kind of the holy grail is the eighteen month turnaround on it, where you just you can take level one <laughs> in December, take level two in June, and then take level three in June afterwards. I know one person that's done that, but very different. But yeah, you did. I think you did them three straight years, right? And yeah, I boom, did boom, it. boom, boom, um, pass, yeah, pass, pass, pass. Sh- well, I, t- I didn't pass level two. Okay. In the first go around close but didn't pass all right (laughs) well regardless you've been put through the gauntlet (laughs) and came out alive on the other end so so zach knows the stuff when it comes to investments is what we're trying to get across so we should listen to him i have zach on speed dial i call him almost daily just to run things by him just to chat with him and and have another set of eyes on things for sure yeah super helpful when uh when we have questions about investments for our clients uh, accounts but um like rochelle mentioned earlier we want to talk about tax loss harvesting today, which is a a somewhat technical concept, but for those of you listening, most of you are going to be in pretty high income brackets, uh, which means you're going to be in pretty high tax brackets. And this can be a beneficial strategy to uh, utilize when presented to to lower your tax bill. And everyone loves lowering their tax bill. Um, You know, in a perfect world, we would never have losses. We would only have gains and everyone would be happy. But We'd be happy to pay taxes because we only had gains ever. Exactly. But (laughs) unfortunately, the world isn't perfect. We have ups and downs in life and in the stock market. And when the stock market does deliver some of those downs, not ideal from a, I guess, performance metric, but it is beneficial from a tax standpoint. And you can use those periods of, uh, of volatility to, to help reduce your tax bill. So Zach, why don't, you know, we, we start off just so people understand the nuances a little bit of of how investments are taxed. So I guess what type of investment accounts are actually subject to Mm -hmm. capital gains taxes? Yeah. So the main thing, the main accounts that are taxed are are non-retirement accounts. So anything that's not a Roth IRA, IRA, SEP IRA, anything without IRA in the name for it. Or like a 401k or yeah. Um, and so usually that's either an individual account, a non or a, a joint account, trust accounts, things like that. Um, and really, it's it's the accounts that you would get a 1099 for that you expect to pay taxes every year on. Um, so yeah. And then you know within those accounts you have unrealized gains and realized gains. And can you talk about the differences in those and what are actually subject to taxes? Yeah, so with capital gains taxes, they're only assessed on realized capital gains. So you realize a gain once you sell the position. Um, So at any given time, you have gains or losses in all the positions in your account as long as they've moved at all. So if you have a position that uh, you bought for $100 and it's worth $101, then you have a $1 gain in it. Um, that's not taxed. It's only taxed if you were to sell the $101, and then you'd be taxed on the 1% or the $1 difference between 101 and 100. Um, and so that would be your realized capital gain. Yeah, I like to explain it when you actually have the opportunity to put cash in your pocket. Um, I mean, most people will just reinvest or, yeah. you know, they're selling a security to buy a different one. But, yeah. um, and they're, you know, you don't have to pull the sell trigger yourself either, right? Like it could be if you own a mutual fund. And they make some adjustments and sell positions yeah, that can trigger and, a capital gain for you. So that is one of the, the difference between mutual funds and ETFs where those capital gains distributions are sent out from the mutual funds, where with ETFs, they're, it's, the way that they're structured, they tend to not spit out capital gains distributions. Um, and so usually those capital gains distributions for mutual funds happen at the end of the year. So that's one of the reasons why you could do tax loss harvesting to offset any of those distributions that you can't do anything about. 
Perfect. And then I think one thing that's important to note is that capital gains taxes are a little bit different than income taxes. Mm -hmm. So like there's long-term capital gains and then there's short-term capital gains, which is kind of the same thing as ordinary income taxes. But can you tell us a little bit about the long-term capital gains and when that comes into effect? So long-term capital gains are are realized gains for positions you've held for more than 12 months. Um, And then that's on a per tax law basis. So if you were to buy, if you, uh, if you bought, part of your position six months ago and bought part of it now, um, the part that you bought six months ago would be, it would turn into long-term gains 12 months from when you bought it, and then what you bought today would be 12 months from today. So you can break it down and get pretty detailed with what you're actually realizing. Um, And uh, for short-term capital gains taxes, they're taxes income, like Rochelle said, and long-term capital gains taxes are, it it fluctuates depending on your income. Usually it's between 15 and 20 percent, and then if you're in the top income tax brackets, there's also an extra 3.8 percent surcharge on there. So it can it's really between 15 and 23.8 percent what your capital gains taxes. And that's just federal, so you could have additional state state on top of that. So a lot of you guys will, you know, at the very least, probably be in 15 percent plus the three point whatever, um, and a good chance you'll you'll dip into that 20% range too, which right now, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, do you know much historically uh, about where capital gains tax rates have, have hovered or fluctuated? Yeah, I think, I think 15% was, I mean, I know before, I think there were some recent changes that bumped up some of the other brackets up into that 20 to 23% range. Um, I think that actually had to do with Obamacare. Yeah, that 3.8 surcharge. Yeah. Um, and but before that, I think it was just a straight 15. Yeah. And I think in the 90s, uh, you know, during the Clinton years, I, I want to say the top one was even, like, close to 40%, if I recall. It, yeah, it wouldn't shock me. I mean, tax rates in general have come down a lot over the past yeah. 20, 30 years. So, it's just like income taxes, capital gains tax rates fluctuate mm-hmm. uh, over time. Yeah. So, and then it, we've got, uh, you know, short-term gains, long-term gains, and then also if, your investments go down in value, Mm -hmm. short-term losses and long-term losses. And I guess kind of what's the order of operations for, you know, how losses and gains interact and potentially offset each other? Yeah, so I think the main thing there to keep in mind is that the benefit of tax loss harvesting is you are able to harvest the losses that you have and then you can use those to offset gains um, when you realize them. And so with that, you have short and long-term on both sides. Typically it's, it, they offset like to like. So short-term gains will offset, or short-term losses will offset short-term gains. Long-term losses will offset long-term gains. And then if there's any left over on either side, then they will go to offset whatever else is left. And then if you have leftover after that, you can use up to three thousand a year to de- uh, to deduct, deduct from your normal income taxes. And it's not like a straight tax deduction. It reduces your income. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And what if you have? like 10,000 of losses at the end of the year, but you can only use three. Yeah, so you can use three. I think one of the things that people get mixed up on is that you can use an unlimited number of losses to offset gains in a given year, but you can only use three to deduct against income. If there's anything left after that, then that would roll forward to the next year and the whole process process starts again. So if you had new losses accumulated in the next year, you would add those to the ones that were rolled forward, and then you'd go through and offset things. And then, Or if you had gains, like if you have... 7,000 that, you know, in that example, 10,000 in net losses for the year, you write three off your taxes, there's still seven unused, so you could offset 7,000 of gains the following year, potentially? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Who's in charge of keeping track of all that? 
Uh, it depends on, on, on what you do there. I believe some of the tax softwares that people use um, or the software programs, they will keep track of your mm -hmm. your accumulated losses. The The main issue there is that if you switch tax providers right. or something like that, you'll lose that information. Right. Uh, it's still possible to go track that stuff down. I know um, for us, we have um, that information saved a couple of years back just automatically. Um, but a lot of times it's up to the financial advisor to keep track of that information, or you if you're managing things on your own. Yeah, just make sure that you're keeping good notes on your end, too, if you do something like this. Absolutely. And if yeah. you work with a CPA for taxes, they should, they should be tracking yeah. that for you as yeah, well, you have hopefully. A, yeah, if you have a dedicated CPA that you go back to every year, that, that should be the, the person. Mm-hmm. And let me walk us through an example of how someone would actually go about successfully harvesting yeah. losses in their accounts. Yeah, so I think one of the main limitations that people need to be aware of, maybe it's good to go on the wash sales first okay. a little bit. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so um, one of the limitations that the government has set for tax house harvesting is the wash sale rule. So what the wash sale rule is is that you can't, um, you can't sell something at a loss and then buy the same thing or a sim uh, uh, what was the term that they used? Um, substantially. I, substantially yeah. um, equal investment with those proceeds within um, 30 days, either before or after. So um, if you do that, then you, the losses are basically canceled out. Technically, they would roll forward, and so whenever you sold the other position, it would roll into that. Um, not really sure how the tracking goes for that, but typically just avoid wash sales because they don't benefit you. Um, and so uh, like a, a, some things that would be wash sales is uh, it, it, a lot of it, the substantially equal is a really tough, there's not really a good definition for it. Um, I know for me, I, I'm not comfortable with, if you own like an S&P 500 mutual fund, I'm not comfortable with selling that mutual fund and then buying another brand of S&P 500 mutual fund. I feel like that's a no-go. Um, another thing that you could potentially do instead of that is pick a different index. So, I mean, uh, if you use the S&P 500, you could also use the Russell 1000 or like an MSCI index or something like that. Um, something that's different. Um, from an index standpoint, for active funds, you can pretty much avoid wash sales just if, it, is this gonna be a different strategy? So um, there are some risks to that that we can get into, but um, yeah, typically it's just, you don't wanna buy the same thing. Also, if you're you're buying like a stock or if you're, uh, if you're offsetting uh, or if you're realizing losses in a stock, you don't wanna buy that same stock again within. 30 days. Probably the most straightforward example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wasn't sure, honestly, if we could talk about. Oh, yeah, we can talk about. Like, like stocks in there. Because I think a good example would be like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, where they both do similar things. Um, so what you could do is you could harvest losses in Coke, and then you could buy Pepsi in the term, intermediate term just in case for that sector or that business just in general does well. Then you're, you remain invested in the asset class and then um, mm -hmm. can hold that for 30 days or whatever you want to do and then switch back to Coca-Cola. And I this know we is didn't. not a recommendation to buy or sell Coke or Pepsi <laughs> no. stock. This is just an example of two very similar companies. Yeah. So exactly. Compliance, and Zach, I, don't oh get mad at us. 
And Zach, I know you didn't get to the question yet, but I'm going to take like one step back because I think the important thing for people to realize here is that when we sell in order to trigger losses, we we want to lock those losses in for tax purposes, but not for investment purposes, which is why we go back mm-hmm. in and then we reinvest that money that we just sold. Yeah. Because there's a lot of like, you know, when we're in a really, really volatile market, people maybe panic and they want to mm-hmm. sell because they want to get out. Like that is not the goal here. The yeah. goal is to sell, trigger losses for tax purposes, but get yourself back into the market. Immediately. Immediately, yeah. yeah. In something else, because that that's the rule. That's the thing that we want to avoid is just yeah. not putting your money back into something that's exactly the same because then the IRS is like, what are you doing, yeah, basically? You wanna, essentially, you want to be as close to the same investment as possible without being substantially right. the same Asset. Right, because your risk tolerance hasn't changed, I hope. Mm-hmm. Like, we're still trying to accomplish the same goals. Yeah. We're just trying to, you know, do some things to, to help with the tax bill along the way. And so, like, a good <laughs> example of issues you could have there is, is specifically with the COVID-19 situation, value stocks have been beaten, beaten up pretty bad, badly. And so what you wouldn't want to do is sell a value stock and then go buy a growth stock mm-hmm. to do your tax loss harvesting. You'd Which has done really well, yeah. The value stock, yeah. Exactly. So um, you want if, if something is underperformed, you want to buy into something that's similar and is also underperformed rather than going it the other way and buying something that's outperformed. Exactly. Um, and if you're dealing with mutual funds or something like that, you want to keep the same risk profile overall. Um, so, yeah. yeah, the goal is not to really change your investment objectives. It's just exactly. to, you know, let's use this, uh, you know, law, regulation, whatever, to minimize our tax bill yeah. legally. And if you think about it, I mean, it, the, one of the benefits of it is, I mean, I know there were some mutual funds, for example, or some indexes that were down at their probably 2015, 2016 level, some were even lower than that, where, I mean, you accumulated gains potentially over that entire period, where it essentially lets you to, uh, to harvest all those losses, and you can offset, it almost lets you offset the gains over that time period, where if the market recovers, then you've essentially just canceled out your, the gains that have accumulated over the last three or four years. Um, I mean, there's, it's a big if. I mean, if things do recover, but over time they have, so it, it does help offset your... Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, just to kind of... We kind of went all over the place right there, but just to kind of clarify, so for for someone that, you know, let's go back, you know, between when this is being recorded in July and when it gets released, yeah. probably August or September sometime, who knows what's going to happen in the market, but if we were to go yeah. back in time to say March of mm-hmm. this year when the market just dropped by yeah. 30 plus percent in four weeks, that was, you know, a decent opportunity to, yeah. you know, if you're using your S&P 500 example, you sell your S&P 500 fund, yep. buy a Russell 1000 fund, mm-hmm. essentially you're staying invested in the same things, large yeah. U.S. company stocks. Exactly. The Russell 1000 has like a broader spectrum, but still for the most part, similar names. Mm-hmm. Um and then you've locked in whatever your losses were from that S&P exactly. position. Okay. And then after the 30 days to avoid the wash sale, yeah. do you, would you then go back to the S&P or do you just leave it in the rust or what, what do it you look for? It depends on the situation. So for me, I think, I mean, you can harvest losses on both index funds and actively managed funds. I prefer, like, I think the top priority would be index funds because it's, it's easy to stay in something that's similar without um, having the risk of, Maybe maybe the active fund underperform, but it'll outperform on the upside or something like that just because it's going to be invested. Every fund is invested differently. Where indexes, at the end of the day, if you buy large U.S. companies, 
they're all going to perform in aggregate about the same regardless of which index you're in. Um, so with index funds, I don't have a problem if the market recovers and you're going to all of a sudden have a ton of gains in the new fund to just leave that in there for the time being. You don't really need to, there's not an urge to sell it and, and replace it. Um, if there's a fund, for example, like an actively managed fund that we just really like the manager, it's just a case-by-case -case basis where um, if we want to get back into that fund because we trust them over the long term, then we'll probably look at it depending on what the, the capital gains are. Um, in March, I mean, the, the big thing was we had this, uh, we had a quick recovery from the lows. And so if you did, if you tax loss harvested at the lows, you're going to have significant gains in whatever the replacement fund was. So it's just kind of a case-by-case -case basis on how, how much you like the fund that you replaced it with compared to um, the, the original. Right, because then if you sell that, then you've triggered a whole bunch of gains, and then which completely, what you just did. exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is important to that when you're replacing the investment that you sell, that you pick something that you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Because if you put something in there that you're not comfortable with yeah. and you feel like you have to sell it, like obviously it, mm -hmm. it limits your choices. Exactly. So yeah. you should like the replacement fund yeah. as much as you like the original fund, hopefully. Right. Um, Maybe if not exactly the same. That, I guess that's a, that could be a reason not to tax loss harvest something. If it's a unique fund that is doing its own thing that you can't find any good replacement out there, um, maybe you hold on to that one. It just kind of depends on what the losses are and I, I think a good example or a good thing to think about is, I mean, if you're already if you're already realizing a, a large amount of losses in a, a given year, maybe you don't need to harvest. Like, if there's one position that you really want to hang on to, maybe you just leave that one alone. You don't have to get everything all the time. Um, it's just more of a cost-benefit analysis. Makes sense. Now, you mentioned earlier tax lots. You know, and this, I think, is probably most applicable for the listeners here because they're younger. Yeah. Their odds are they make an ongoing deposits, and every you know month, potentially, they're buying yeah. a new tax lot. So how does someone who has a bunch of different entry points into a position successfully tax loss harvest? Yeah, and so with that, I mean, it's uh, I think a lot of the times when um, people look at their statements or something like that, they don't realize that each purchase that you make actually has a different... Um, tax lot to it. So even dividend reinvestment. So if you're reinvesting your dividends over time, that will be different purchases. And then the, for if you've held a position for a long time, it'll be a long list. Um, and so especially in a situation like this year, I mean, the S&P 500 has done very well over the last 10 years. But for example, this year, just in, if you had purchased it between February and March, you still had significant losses in those tax lots. So you could take different approaches. There, you could go in and hand select which tax lots you want to sell. Um, you can also do different tax methods. I know one that we use a lot is high cost long term. So what it'll do is it'll prioritize your long term capital gains first, um, and then it will uh, after that uh, it'll go to short term, and then it'll uh, basically go from the the it'll, it'll want to realize the biggest losses first and then get to gains later. So you, when we say like high cost, that's basically the highest cost basis. And so if you realize the highest cost basis, that also means the lowest taxes. Um, so that's how we do it. A lot of times when we realize gains for losses, you could just do like a high cost kind of situation. Um, when you realize losses, to me, I think that short-term losses are more valuable than long-term because if you think about it, if you're offsetting gains, um, the long-term gains are taxed income rates versus the short-term gains are taxed at, um, or sorry. The other way around. Yeah, sorry. The uh, short-term gains are taxed at income rates and long-term gains are taxed at the lower rate. Um, so if you have the ability to offset the short-term ones, 
even though in the end, of the, in the end, if you have enough losses, it'll offset everything. There's still incremental extra value to the short-term losses. It's like if you've been investing for the last decade and every month buying, yeah. you know, the S and P 500 mm-hmm. index, you know, your shares you purchased back in 2010, 11, 12, 13, yeah. 14, even with the big decline in March of this year, you still had substantial exactly. gains. So yeah. you probably wouldn't want to liquidate your entire position. Mm-hmm. Just find the purchases that yeah. are sitting at losses. And so a lot of times when you look at like a position in an account, if you don't get the detailed breakdown, you'll see, especially for the S&P 500, you'd see, oh, well, they have, I mean, they have $100,000 invested and they still have a gain of $3,000, for example. But if you break that down, you realize that the older positions have a gain of $50,000 and then the newer positions have a loss of um, like $47,000 or something like that. And so um, you can still sell those shorter term positions and then pull a ton of losses out of that without when you wouldn't normally think of that because... Yeah, well, and that could be, like, I mean, you mentioned earlier, you could have a position where you essentially offset all of your gains. Mm -hmm. In that example you just gave, if you wanted to move off of that position for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. well, now's a good opportunity to do so and reinvest in something else without getting hit with a big tax bill. It's also a good opportunity just for rebalancing an account in general, um, just because it, yeah, I know if you have certain positions, especially the S&P 500, where if you're trying to further diversify... There's no better time to do it than when the market's down in general. Uh, a lot of the gains are less inflicted. Yeah, a lot of times, like, younger investors end up rebalancing with new contributions, but especially if you're a little bit farther along in your career and you're not making mm-hmm. contributions anymore, it can be hard to rebalance a taxable account without triggering a ton of gains. Mm-hmm. So it can be really helpful. One thing I just realized that we didn't touch on with wash sales, like, mm-hmm. most people will have their taxable account, their 401K, oh. their IRA. Yeah. Um, and they might have the same positions in all three. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so that's a that's a really tricky one, which, which this one's really hard to monitor. Um, the, so with if you have a wash sale within the same non-retirement account, that one's easy. I mean, it's just it's a wash sale. It's very obvious. It'll show up on your 1099 as a wash sale. The ones where it gets a little bit trickier is if you have two non-retirement accounts and one's at like a different, like if one's at a different institution or something like that, technically it would still be a wash sale. If you, if you were to, if you have an account at like say Vanguard, an account at Fidelity, if you were to sell something in the Fidelity account and buy it immediately in the Vanguard account, that would still be a wash sale. Um, it's up to you to report that to the IRS. So it's something that, or your CPA or, or that. So it's something that should be kept track of um, definitely. And then the other thing there is that uh, there are wash sales across, um, like if you have an IRA or a Roth IRA or something like that, or I think technically a 401k too, you can have wash sales across retirement accounts with non-retirement accounts as well. So if you're buying in other accounts, pay extra careful attention mm-hmm. to what you're selling in Which your taxable I mean, account. Yeah, it, it makes sense when you think about it. Like, uh, I mean, mutual funds, I feel like sometimes, sometimes people say, it's like, oh, well, I mean, that's not fair. It's like, this is what I have available in my 401k. But the other way you could look at it is if you own $100,000 of Apple stock and um, you have losses in it, and then you were to just sell it and go buy it in your Roth IRA, I mean, that, that seems like that's kind of a cheat around the rules. So that's why they have that in place is the Absolutely. duplication of accounts. Makes sense. The more you know. <laughs> um, so if uh, someone har- harvests a bunch of losses during the year, say mm-hmm. spring of this year, they, you know, they were smart, they were paying attention, they sold when the market was down, reinvested. Yeah. Um, now they ha- they're sitting potentially on some gains. We're coming close to the end of the year, and they've got all these – 
losses that they're sitting on would you know do you potentially look at selling positions at gains and use those losses in this year to offset the gains or what do you usually look at or do i think it depends so like you have the, the losses accumulated at the end of the year i don't necessarily look to just realize gains for the sake of realizing gains um i still like to have the losses just booked in case we need them later um a good example a good reason for that would be it, maybe you don't need to rebalance the account now, but you might need to rebalance it in a year or two, um, where that gives you the flexibility to do that. Where if you if you're just kind of making trade changes to make changes, it, you're almost losing the the uh, the losses for that. I think in the end it kind of nets out. I mean, you're going to have the same amount of gains in the end of the account probably, and the same amount of losses if you accumulate them over your entire investment time horizon. It's still going to add up to the same number. That said, in the moment, it's nice to be able to offset things rather than having a big tax bill when you don't necessarily need it. I guess that's one thing that I think is really helpful to think about is just, so when we trigger capital losses, when we are trying to offset capital gains, but really the goal is for your money to grow long term, mm -hmm. it feels like you're just kicking the can down the road. Like, I don't want to pay taxes yet. I want to pay taxes yeah. later. Like, what's the point of that? Why? Yeah, I think the main thing, the main reason for delaying your capital gains uh, in non-retirement accounts is it's more of the, the compounding interest interest principle where the more money you have in the account, it continues to compound the better. And so if you're paying a bunch of taxes throughout the time period, like the, the period, those that those dollar amounts couldn't compound. I think that's a particular issue if you're using, so if you have a non-retirement account and then you're pulling money out of that to pay your taxes, I think that's a good, that's well, that's the key if you're pulling it out to pay the taxes, yeah, mm -hmm. which some people would have to, mm -hmm. sizable yeah, gains. depending on the situation. I mean, if you have a ton of gains, uh, that might be what you need to do. And so in that situation, you're hurting your compounding. And so over the long term, it's better to pay all the gains at the end rather than pay them throughout the... Well, depending on... Your circumstances, like, you know, I think most doctors are in pretty high tax brackets when they're working. Mm -hmm. you know, they might be in that 24% capital gains federal mm -hmm. bracket right now. They get to retirement. They don't need nearly as much to support their lifestyle. Some of their money's in Roth accounts. Yeah. They're getting some Social Security. They, And when you, you know, odds are in, in retirement, if you're pulling money out of a, a brokerage account, a good portion of that is going to be your cost basis, what you contributed. It's not a hundred percent gain. Exactly. So, I mean, you there's a scenario where you could be living a pretty comfortable lifestyle and effectively have zero capital gains taxes because those yeah. lower couple tax brackets you're taxed at a zero percent cap gains rate. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you're you're, I mean, you're delaying your taxes, but and who knows what the future holds with tax rates and everything, but you're potentially paying at a lower rate in retirement than yeah. today. Yeah, exactly. Where I think that's one thing where people avoid realizing gains for so long. And it's like, once you're retired, that's the most tax advantage place almost <laughs> to pull it out, except for a Roth IRA. Well, then if you die and leave an inheritance, your heirs get a step up in basis. Yeah. And whatever the value is at that point in time, that's where their starting point is at. Yeah, I think that's really important, too, is that, you know, I explain what that means, Zach, the whole step up, step in, basis. up in basis. Yeah. Yeah, so if, if um, so say, like a parent passes away and they mm -hmm. pass on the investments to one of the children. Um, when they, I, I can't remember if it's when they die or when it's actually transferred, um, but it steps up the basis. So if, so say you held a ton of Apple stock and you had, say you had bought it for $50,000 and then now it's worth 100,000. If the parent were to sell that, that would be a, I mean, you'd have to pay capital gains tax on $50,000 of that. Where if you get the step up in basis, it 
bumps the cost basis up to the hundred thousand dollars that it's at now, um, and so it is essentially avoids capital gains taxes. I mean, you also have estate taxes potentially to deal with and things like that, but depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. Definitely, but that's a big advantage, mm-hmm. you know, if you hold on to that stuff long term and pass it on to someone else. For sure. Yep. Cool. Do you have any real life scenarios, Corey, where clients have tried to do this or where? Um, I mean, I've been doing this for 11 years. I started in 2009, Mm -hmm. so timing couldn't have been more perfect. 2009, market started going up and it basically never stopped. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've had a couple speed bumps along the way, but, you know, we, we haven't really seen a ton of tax loss harvesting opportunities, at least in domestic stocks. Um, but I mean, this year is a good example. Like, yeah. I, I don't know, I haven't run the numbers, maybe you have, but we've probably harvested well over a million dollars of losses for our clients this mm-hmm. year and, and ultimately we'll save them hundreds of thousands in taxes. Yeah. Again, we'd prefer to just have gains, pay taxes mm-hmm. on our gains, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're yeah. coming out ahead. But when, you know, market goes down and then hits a trampoline and comes back up, you know, yeah. you've got an opportunity there to save some taxes and ultimately end up in the same place. Exactly. if you weren't being proactive. So um, I think it's just hopefully you're either working with a financial advisor that's paying attention to this stuff or have your yeah. money in, in, in a you know, tax-managed investment portfolio yeah. or you're paying attention yourself because there's, there's opportunities to be had and to mm-hmm. lower your tax bill. Yeah, and I mean, you never know. Sometimes there's a quick recovery or something like that, but sometimes you could have another pullback and you could you have the opportunity to harvest losses twice. Yeah, um, where if you're not paying attention to that kind of thing. I think that's the main risk is if, if you're not paying attention to it, just not taking advantage of that. Um, I also think that uh, most clients, I think if you were to pull up a statement or something like that, most clients don't know what their actual cost basis is. You almost have to ask specifically for the cost basis, but then even then, the, the really granular detail, um, a lot of times people don't even know that that exists. So if you're trying to harvest losses, it's hard to do that without having that information, and so that's one of the ways where financial advisor can help. Yeah, the tax lots are the key. Like, that's how you successfully do it to maximize your, I guess, tax lowering mm-hmm. <laughs> abilities mm-hmm. and uh, and still uh, your investment uh, overall strategy. So anything right. else, Zach, yeah. that you think we didn't cover that would be beneficial for people to know? I don't think so. I think we did a pretty good job. If anyone has questions, you know where to find us. Yes. Enjoy. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram Vanderzanen Rochelle or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanen. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the affinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Affinity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at theaffinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Affinity Group LLC.